Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 75 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Hello, hello again, and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 785Live.com. I want to thank everybody at 785Live.com for supporting this uh, show. I want to thank Carice and, and everybody. I'm really excited about today's show because we're going to talk about a play that is not only very interesting in its construction, but it's interesting in terms of what's missing from it and how it ends. And again, we're digging still with some of the very early works of William Shakespeare, if you haven't been listening to the broadcast, let me tell you what's going on. My name is Shannon Riley. I am a Shakespeare fanatic. I am not a scholar. I just happen to love Shakespeare a great deal. And I am uh, using this half-hour show once a week from KSEF Digital Radio to come on the air and talk about the greatest playwright that ever lived, William Shakespeare. And I am currently in my path of taking each one of his shows, one at a time, talking about where they came from, what they're about, and interesting facts about those plays. And today, we're talking about one of Shakespeare's earliest comedies, uh, probably written around 1597. We know it was published in 1598, and that's a play called Love's Labor's Lost. It's Shakespeare's only alliteration title. It's also uh, the only play of his that really can be called an English manners play. It has a great deal of wordplay. It's mentally taxing. It's very hard to follow in some places, and I'm going to talk about that. And it was probably more successful in Shakespeare's time than it can be for audiences of today because a lot of the references to who these people are represented in the play are lost to us. But... Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it, but first we do, as we always do, we stop and we hear the Shakespeare quote of the week. And so it's time, my boy, let it go. And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right, Shakespeare's quote of the week, and of course, it comes from the play of our topic today. It's from Love's Labor's Lost, Act 1, Scene 1. And I think this is an interesting quote. I picked this quote because 
I think it, it talks to me in terms of patience, everything in its own right. And uh, so the quote is, At Christmas, I no more desire a rose than I wish a snow in May's newfangled mirth, but like of each thing that in its season grows. All things in its own time, all things where they should be, be patient, enjoy what you have. I, I really like that quote. It's kind of an aberration for this play, since the men in this play find it very hard to be patient. Love's Labor's Lost. What's Love Labor's Lost about? Well, this is a, a little bit of an easier play to do the synopsis of. It's a much harder to understand it in seeing it, I think, than talking about the general aspects of the show itself. First of all, it takes place in the Kingdom of Navarine, which was a part of France. Uh, it eventually is absorbed by France, actually. But it deals with uh, Ferdinand, King of Navarine, and his three noble companions. He has three friends who he's with. It's uh, Baron, Domain, and Longueville. Now, these four men decide that they're going to stay in Navarine and pursue intellectual thoughts. They spend three years of doing nothing but studying, reading, and coming into better understanding of nature, art, life, and in general, scientific principles. They devote themselves just to three years of study. They ask that each one of them hold each other accountable for this so that none of them lose their way. In the meantime, the king orders that they will stay within the confines of his court and no women will be allowed to enter whatsoever. Women are considered the greatest distraction from their pursuits and so women are banished from his court so that these four can continue their studies. Now, just as they're about to start, there's a, there's a Spanish character. It's one of the clown roles. His name is... Don Andriano de Armando. And Armando is a, a Spanish braggart, and he's visiting the court. And he is very angry at a servant by the name of Custard. And Custard has fallen in love with Gianquita, which is the Spanish lord's uh, page. Don Armando wants Custard punished for what he has done. But we find out that Armando himself is madly in love with Jaquita and writes a letter to Jaquita that he gives to Custard to deliver to her. Kind of a strange reason to do it with your rival, but he does. Then, as the story progresses, the Princess of France arrives, and wouldn't you know it, she arrives with three ladies. And they all wish to stay and speak with the king over the succession of the Aquitaine part of France. Now, they're forced to ultimately make a camp outside. But the king and his three gentlemen visit the four ladies at their camp, and wouldn't you know it, of course, they all fall in love. The king with the princess and each of his lord friends with one of the ladies-in-waiting. Fortunately, all different ladies-in-waiting be an entirely different story if they two of them fell in love with the same one and someone was left out. Anyway, it just so happens there's four men, four ladies, and they all fall in love. Barone is one of the most cynical ones of the three men, and he decides he's got to have Rosalind. So he goes to Custard and gives him a letter and says, take this letter and give it to Rosalind. Well, off he goes, but he switches the letters. Remember, he has a letter already for Jaquita. So he ends up giving Barone's letter to Jaquinta and ends up giving Don Armando's letter to Rosalind. That's the first bit of misunderstanding. Now, Barone knows he's going to be in trouble with the king if he finds out he sent out a love letter. So he's hiding. And as he's hiding, each one of the men, in turn, comes upon him. And not knowing that he's there, they profess their love to one of the ladies. And how much they must have one of the ladies that is in that group. Well, including the king, who comes forward to express his love for the 
Princess of France. Marone reveals himself. Says, all of you have cheated on our oath that we promised to take together. You should all be ashamed of yourself. Even the king is quite cowed by this. Well, just then, Jaquita and Custer enter with Barone's letter and accuse him of treason. So they all confess that they're all madly in love with these women and there's nothing they can do about it. So they decide, let's put off this period of study and make hay with these ladies. So uh, they decide they're going to throw a big party and they want... Armando to throw a big play and celebration that they will all attend. But he decides it's fun that they're all going to dress up as Moscovites. They're going to put on Russian costumes and show up to this party and make the move on the ladies of their choice. Well, the ladies get wind of this and they all four decide to disguise themselves as each other so the men will hit on the wrong girl. And of course they do, and much hilarity persists as they fight amongst each other over who is really in love with each other. Well, we're on our way to a happy ending when everybody reveals their costumes and it's all a great big joke. And they all admit that they love each other, but before they can go any further, a messenger arrives from France to tell the princess that her father, the king of France, has died. She must return to France immediately for a year of mourning. She tells her ladies that they all have to leave, and she says to the men, Men, you must stay here, continue your pursuits, and if you can stay loyal to us in one year's time, we will get back together again. And that is the end of the play. Not a typical ending for any romance anywhere, but all of their love's labors have been lost. This is a very unique play. First of all, I've, I've said this before, is that the Elizabethan playwrights had a very strict code if you were writing a comedy. It ended in a marriage. And this play seemed to be heading towards four marriages, which would have been the most entertaining Shakespearean play to end on. But it doesn't happen. Right at the last minute, Shakespeare pulls a rug out from underneath these men, announces that the King of France has died, and that, that the princess has to return home. This is unlike any other comedy in its period. Its audiences must have been kind of confused about it. Or maybe not. Maybe they genuinely love something unique and different. It certainly is hinted at what's going to happen in the title, Love's Labor's Lost. But it's still, for contemporary audiences, very dissatisfying. It feels like we got robbed out of a happy ending. We were going there and suddenly it got so dark. Why would it get so dark? Well, there's an interesting reason I think for that. But I want to first talk about the play itself and when it was written, it, now, we know that it was published around 1598 in quarto form. And that in that quarto, two things are very interesting about it. First of all, it says that it was performed in the mid-1590s for at the Inn of Court before Queen Elizabeth I. So here's a marked point where they're performing original play directly for the Queen. Secondly, the author is attributed to Shakespeare. This is one of the first times, could be the first time, that the name Shakespeare appears in the quarto. And this very well could be because he has developed a name for himself. He's becoming the star playwright, and they want to keep that name attached to it. But it's also written in a very strange way. It, it says it's a revision of a previous play by William Shakespeare. Meaning either Shakespeare went back and rewrote parts of it for the publishing in the quarto, and the, and the author wanted to make sure people understood that if you saw this play... It's a little bit different in the script you're going to read. Or it was written by somebody else and Shakespeare went in and cleaned up the play and rewrote it himself. Although that's unlikely since this play was immediately picked up again and used by Shakespeare's company for a few years with moderate success. And actually it appeared in the first folio when Shakespeare's company was pulling all together the plays. So 
It definitely is a Shakespeare work. It's just interesting that they call it a revision of a play by William Shakespeare. That's the first thing that's interesting about it. Secondly, what's interesting about it is how it's spelled. Love's Labor's Loss has two apostrophes after love and labor. Love's Labor's Lost. But it doesn't appear with apostrophes in the quarto, but it does in the folio. Some people make a big deal about this. I don't understand why. In Shakespeare's time, spelling and punctuation were so haphazard. It's whatever people felt, and it wasn't really consistent. They hadn't even established the consistent spelling for common words that they were using in the English language at that time, let alone punctuation. But it's become a point of concern for those scholars that really like to get muddled down into the deep, dirty stuff. Three other really kind of neat things about it, and that, that is, it's A, it's got the longest single scene in Shakespeare's canon. It's, very, uh, it's a very long scene in Act 2, Scene 1, and it's got the longest speech, depending upon which editorial version you use, it's got the longest speech by any particular player in Shakespeare's canon. But more interesting enough is it has the longest word. I'm going to destroy this word as I say it. But it, this was the word that was used. It's spelled H-O-N-O-R-I-F-I-C-A-B-I-L-I-D-U-D-I-N-I-T-A-T-I-B-U-S. Honorificabilitidariadabus. I, I messed that up. I messed that up horribly and I knew I would. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else can probably do it better than me. But it is the longest word in Shakespeare's canon. And he uses it only once. I'm going to try that again. It's honorificabilitudinatibus. <laughs> it means the state of being able to achieve honors. It's used only once in all of Shakespeare's canon, as I said. And for some bizarre reason... Some scholars believe it shows that Shakespeare did not write this play that was really written by Francis Bacon, since Francis Bacon used the word twice in his canon. <laughs> by that argument, maybe Shakespeare wrote Bacon. <laughs> because there's no other finger that you can point at it and say, yes, of course, of course, Bacon wrote it because this word is in there. I think that's ridiculous. This is definitely a William Shakespeare play, but it's also got a very shocking other side to it, and I'm going to touch on, on the other side of our break today. There's an exciting element that I like to talk about when you talk about Love's Labor's Lost, and that is, why did it end that way? And is it a hint at something else much more exciting? What is it? I'll tell you on the other side. Thank you for listening to Shannon's Shakespeare Shunday. And by the way, if you want to reach me, you can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. Love to hear from you. And while you're there, you can ask any question you like, send me an email, or also go to my website and check out some of my plays. I'd love for you to do that. We'll be back in just a few minutes on the other side with more about Love's Labor's Lost. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. I'm Shannon Riley, and I thank you for being here as we talk about 
William Shakespeare's play, Love's Labor's Lost. Now, this is my 23rd episode, by the way, of Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. And if you've missed any of them, or you'd like to rehear one, that's possible. You can not only find them in the archives here at KSEF Digital Radio, but you can also find them on my website at shannonjreilly.com. All my podcasts are there. I'm pretty caught up. And you can go back and catch some of the ones you might have missed or would like to visit once again. And as always, if you have a question or a thought or something you'd like me to consider as we go forward with Shannon Shakespeare Shundays, please let me know by sending me an email at shannon at shannonjreilly.com. Again, Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from all of you. I've had a great time uh, working on these shows, and it's kind of exciting to go back and rediscover some of the things I might have forgotten, or even new information that I just did not know. And as I said, there's a very interesting story to Love's Labor's Loss on the other side. Now, many years ago, I was reading about Love's Labor's Loss, and I gotta tell you, it's never been one of my favorite plays. Simply because I think it would be a bear to produce, okay? You have to have four men and four women that all share basically the lead role. This isn't really a play where anybody is more important than anyone else of those eight people. They share common stage time. So you have these four roles, but they have to look like each other and then not look like each other. They have to go into disguise. And how does an audience follow who everybody is? When they show up as Russians, do they know who's who in the Russian outfit? As an audience member, it would be very hard to follow this story unless the director is very clear, very clever, and the costume designer is very clear and very clever and making you have hints so you can follow who is who when they go into disguise. The other thing that's difficult about this play is that the four main men are based on real-life people from the Elizabethan era. One of them is the French, who would become the French king, French Henry IV, who is Prince Frederick, is based on. And the three other men in his company are also based on famous Elizabethans. Their mannerisms would have been used as um, a way to let you know who they are, and audiences would have eaten them up, but we don't know these people anymore. And the further you get away from the source of these people, the less you really get all of the jokes that are in it. Love's Labor's Loss is a huge in-joke. It is making a great deal of fun of people at court, particularly the Spanish ambassador. When you consider that England had beaten the Spanish Armada in around 1588, they were still living off this 10, 20 years later, and the buffoonish side of the Spanish ambassador would have been played up very heavily and might even come off racist today. So they would have pushed that side of the Spanish ambassador to absolute silliness. It would make people laugh a lot in the Elizabethan period. Again, kind of far removed from that situation. So it's kind of hard to follow. I found this in a reference and I I could not verify it anywhere else. But in one of my references, they were talking about Love's Labor's Loss was written during one of the moments of Great Plague. And when plagues happened, the theater shut down. Shakespeare never left London when the theater shut down. But his company did all the time. They would pack up and they would go out into the countryside and perform in smaller towns. They never made much money when they were doing that. They never enjoyed it. It was hard travel. It was hard work. And it was dangerous. They're highwaymen, and it was hard to travel out and risk company and your uh, well-earned money and gold as you move from town to town. So they didn't like doing this, but they, they did it to keep life and soul together. Shakespeare never went with them for multiple reasons. Uh, one, he didn't like to travel. Two, he could use his time to stay home and write and Three, he wanted to be ready when the theaters were opening up again and be able to start the company again. 
So one of my references states that when Shakespeare was writing Love Letters Lost, the theaters were shut down, so he went to stay at the Earl of Southampton's, where he was a resident poet for that earl. And he wrote some of his sonnets there, he wrote a narrative, long narrative poem there, and he wrote Love's Labor's Lost, based on people who this earl found very funny. So again, it was a great big in-joke. And when the theaters opened up again, it was around Christmas time, and they performed it for Queen Elizabeth. I'm sure that they enjoyed it. But it's one of those plays that I just think, out of its time frame, we lose some of it. But I want to talk about the ending. Because even to Elizabethans, that ending would have made no sense. The very fact that you're on your way to four weddings, and you just pull the rug out and say, nope, the ladies have to go home, and you all have to wait a year. Why does Shakespeare do this? Well, my people believe, and I'm one of them, that he intended to write a sequel. Love's Labors won. Even though it's pointed out that nobody did that with comedies, Shakespeare was quite uncommon with how he did most things. And anyone who thinks Shakespeare didn't like a sequel didn't know about Henry VI Part 1, 2, and 3. So yeah, I think he was going to write a sequel. And indeed, we have evidence that he may have done just that. There is a notation that a play written called Love's Labors One was written in 1598 and published in 1603. Now this is possibly the sequel to Love's Labors Lost, and it's a lost Shakespearean play, meaning no record of it could be found other than the listing of it being published. Now, some people feel like that doesn't mean it was a new play. It could have been a play that was used by a different name. Nevertheless, we know a play was published under the name Love's Labor's Lost, and it's listed with all of Shakespeare's work at the time, which was The Gentleman of Verona, His Errors, His Love Labor's Lost, Midsummer's Night Dream, and The Merchant of Venice. And it was printed in quarto form and listed as some of the stuff written by William Shakespeare in quarto form by 1603, listing all of the titles including March, uh, The Merchant of Venice, Tain of Shrew, Love Labor's Lost, and Love Labor One. Now, some scholars believe that it really is not a lost play, that it's just a different title. They've even argued that Taming the Shrew was Love's Labor's One, and just they changed the title later. That makes no sense to me at all. Taming of the Shrew was written beforehand, and there was evidence of two different Taming of the Shrews for that matter. So I don't think that that's the case. But could it have been a later comedy, such as As You Like It, that originally was published under the name Love's Labor's Lost, uh, or Love's Labor's One, and then was republished under the name All's Well That Ends Well, or As You Like It? We, we, we just don't know. I think it's very likely, though, that... A play published 400 years ago, sold in bookstalls, may be lost. We already know there's another play for certain that we only have one song and one scene from, and that's The Tragedy of Cardinio, based possibly on the work of Miguel Cervantes and Don Quixote. We have a scene, we have a song from that play, but we don't have the rest. How many plays might Shakespeare have written that are just plain lost? Or maybe... They're sitting on some dusty shelf in some very old manor house or library, completely waiting to be discovered again. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that, oh, I just think about that all the time. I've had dreams about that. Wouldn't that be great to just find this missing play, Love's Labors 1? I just don't buy into the idea that A, Shakespeare wouldn't write a sequel because people didn't do that. Shakespeare would do something that other playwrights didn't do all the time. 
I also just don't buy that it was As You Like It or any other comedy because he didn't pick up the characters again. He didn't return to them. And he hints in the play, we will be back in a year. And in a year, we will pick up where we left off. He hints that this is going to come up. So why wouldn't he? Would he have run out of time? Maybe he never got to it. But that doesn't make any sense because we have a notation of it being published in two different sources. Notate a play by the name of Love's Labors One was published. So, what was it? Was it a lost play? It had to have been. And it had to have been a sequel. I just, I hang on this. I can't prove it, but I hang on this. This I lived for the day that this will be found. So the question comes up, why was it included in the first folio? With all the other plays that were collected and gathered. Maybe it was under its more common name, As You Like It. Some people pointed out that by the end of the career of William Shakespeare, he had a new clown in Arnhem. And Arnhem could sing, and he rewrote plays to match Arnhem. Is it possible that Love's Labors 1 was rewritten for As You Like It so he could play Touchstone and sing that sing the music in Touchstone? I don't know. I just don't believe it. I believe that Shakespeare would have gone back and revisited these characters and finished the story. And I would have thought that Elizabethan audiences would have demanded it. They would have known, wanted to know what happens a year later. I do think it's interesting that the Royal Shakespeare Company several years ago opted to do Love's Labor's Lost and companioned it with Much Ado About Nothing, claiming it was really Love's Labor's One. And just the title had been changed for the folio. So they did it as an earmarking of the beginning and the end of the First World War. They did it as a period piece. And it's very interesting. It's certainly, you can make the argument that Love's Labor's Lost is that sense of slowly falling into despair and separation as was a war would create and how much you do about nothing is the return of men from war and the return of love and the social graces. They do companion quite well, but it doesn't mean that that's what it was, what Love's Labor's One was. So we may never know. Was there another play out there called Love's Labor's One? And did it, when Hemings and Connell gather all of the plays in 1623, got together to gather all of the plays for William Shakespeare's first folio, then they just couldn't find it. They could not find Love's Labor's One anywhere. Or they already knew they had it under its new title, Much Ado About Nothing, or As You Like It, or All's Well That Ends Well, or any other number of comedies that it could have possibly been. Someday, I hope... That up on a shelf somewhere, we find two lost plays. Love's Labor's One by William Shakespeare and Cardinio. And I hope I live to see it. If not, I'm going to come back as a ghost and help somebody find it. (laughs) Anyway, that's the story of Love's Labor's Lost. It's hard for me to say that fast. It's a difficult play to produce in our era. It's a difficult play to produce possibly in any era. But it is funny. It's got the most wordplay and puns in the entire history of Shakespeare's plays and the longest word that I cannot pronounce. Look it up, though. It's pretty interesting. I want to thank you all for tuning in for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday this Sunday. And next week, we move into a period where Shakespeare starts writing what contemporary theaters would call the hits. And we're going to start off with perhaps his greatest romantic and tragic story ever written, The Tragedy 
of Romeo and Juliet. Next week on Shannon's Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF75Live.com. I'm your host, Shannon J. Riley. See you next week on the 8s as we present Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. And until then, stay barred to the bone. Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in.